0: when you're at university i think you you think that the design is is everything but design is subjective it's kind of like art and i wish i realized that you're not going to please all the people all the time mm. you actually got to do sometimes what you feel is right yep. or will go with your gut feel if you want to test it and bounce ideas off other people then great but you know what believe in yourself and and go with your gut because you're not going to please all the people all the time
1: welcome back This is the third and final episode of Simon Pohl's Conversation with our host, Ben Lorne. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Ben and Simon.
2: So I think we want to talk about leadership for a moment. Can you just reflect on some of the great leaders you've
0: had the opportunity to work with through your career? I think I've taken different cues Mm -hmm. from different people, especially around the world. And the leadership is is different from the visionary. So I've worked with some amazing, amazing visionaries around the world but they had certain deficiencies in other areas. Becoming a leader is a work in progress, right? So I'm, I'm trying to work out what that unique formula is. I mean, you can read about it, and you, there's a million books on it, yep. right, in terms of what makes a great leader, but actually, is it in your DNA? How do you do it every day without having to try it? You know, it's not acting. You just yes. have to do it, and it has to be second nature. And that's the key part of what I'm trying to learn. And I, maybe I never get there. You know, it, it might be one of those things. Now, I've moved from you know, projects to people focus. And as a part of building this firm and building this brand, I've worked on these incredible projects all the way around the world, but I didn't really have an appreciation or a, or a deep understanding of what it took to motivate different people. And that's what I'm starting to learn now. And over the last couple of years, really understanding why would you behave that way or what is the cultural DNA that means you fit or you don't fit, and particularly within Unispace. So we, we, we joke about we're looking for these rainbow unicorns. So we're looking yep. for someone with incredible empathy that understands and appreciates what a strategist does. So here's a word-based data Person that gets deep and geeks out on that kind of stuff, dealing with a creative designer that just wants to keep on going around and getting the fat pencils yes. out and things like that. And then you've got a, someone that needs to price it, yes. and that's accurate, that's to the scent. Uh, and then you've got someone that builds it. And so you have to have this empathy and respect between the disciplines to yes. get them to work properly. Uh, you know, I've been on site and I've seen what people have done, and I've worked with project managers on programs. But I never really had a massive appreciation for what they did. I just thought they did their job. But if you look at what they do and you, you sit there by them every day, there's a massive amount of work that these people do. And how they balance it and manage it is, is truly incredible. So we, we joke about these rainbow unicorns and, and being able to hire them and getting that right culture in only two or three interviews is yeah. difficult. Thank goodness we're able to bring different people to the table to interview and probe and and, and go deeper into their psyche. And we're now getting better and better at that. We now have a new people and culture leader who is actually working more on the psychometric side of things of you say this, but actually what is your unbiased conscious telling you um, the answer actually is. So thinking about that and getting the right people. So it's not about getting bums on seats to do the work. It's getting the right people and adding to the culture, and so that's something that I've understood a little bit more. Also, we've moved from this fledgling family company to this matrix organisation, right? Yep. And so I was lucky enough to work with a number of firms that had done that transition. Particularly Woods Bagot at the time had, mm-hmm. had moved um, into this matrix organisation. So communication is the key, and you can't under communicate. You can't over communicate. I should say. You need to tell everyone all the time, what's going on and actually draw the information. So it's that listening and communicating the key skills that I've learned over the last couple of years and knowing what to say when (laughs) uh, as well. I'm really interested in
2: the term you're using matrix organization.
0: So we are now got to the size or the scale where we're dealing across multiple studios, multiple regions. And we, we, uh, we use the terminology regions. It's EMEA, Europe and the Middle East and Africa, the Americas, including South America and Asia Pacific are yep. the three main areas that we work in. Uh, we have multiple studios in each region, up to 50 studios and counting. Um, but the studios range from the London studios up to 120 odd people, the Amsterdam studios now at three. So it depends on, you know, we call it a studio, but we try to make sure that we're where the clients need us, yes. not where we like to holiday. And the big corporates that we deal with um, require that local, global. Knowledge is a part of what we do, so mm-hmm. that that's critical. We have the disciplines that make sure we're dealing with the with the client, and and we need to make sure that we are communicating across the matrix. So if you think about the the disciplines uh, yep. running vertically, uh, with strategy, design, delivery, etc., running strategy, and we think about the support mechanisms running across it, and mm-hmm. who we need to get our jobs done, then we we end up with a bit of a matrix. And at each one of those nodes, someone needs to know about what's going on. So communication is key. So I spent a lot of time on VCs and uh, on planes. And especially when you're growing an organisation from what are generally small groups and not everyone's worked in large organisations, there are very few global design firms that start instantaneously around the world. Uh, So we're learning as we go. I think what's interesting in any global practice is how you maintain
2: a, a sense of oneness, a sense of one culture. This is Unispace. But you also need to allow people to own what they're doing every day. People need to have the autonomy to make their own decisions. How does Unispace
0: approach getting that delicate balance? Yeah. And it is a delicate balance. You need to provide, if you provide the strong vision and people come and work at Unispace because they, they want it, they want to change, they want to do something different, and they see that there's possibly a better way and they want to test it and try it and see if it actually is, is is right for them and vice versa. So making sure that they're on board, we're spending a lot of time and effort on that onboarding process at the moment. So mm-hmm. it's not only the selection criteria of do you have the right cultural behaviors, I guess. And we one of the key ones for us is is no ego. We yeah. don't want no big I ams. So that's the, the first bit. We want people that are, are interested in changing the way that they've done it particularly people that are looking to take our methodology and ideas and ad- advance them as well, which is great. And we need to make sure that they are going to fit in with the group uh, as much as possible. Because Harmony across, we've already got you know, all these disciplines trying to work together who aren't like-minded. If you yep. think about the strategists being Word and Database, you know, the creatives, and then the construction. So trying to get those together is hard enough. We need to make sure we've got the right alignment of the cultural and behaviors within each one of the disciplines as well. So bringing it together as one is critical, and that's, that's really my, my job. Yep. Um, so I spend a lot of time on the plane uh, and on, on VCs uh, interviewing people from around the world, uh, making sure we're getting different perspectives. So we get the strategy people interviewing as well as the uh, delivery team yeah. interviewing as well to get a broader understanding of do they think this designer would work well? With this person on site or with a strategist, do they empathize with what it is that they're trying to do and understand the, the skill level that they've got?
2: So obviously Unispace is quite unique in that it started as a global practice. And I'm really interested to understand how that alters the culture of a practice and whether that's something you had to be really conscious about maintaining one culture across a
0: diverse organization. As a part of my role, one of the first thing that I did was make sure that I travelled around to the different regions and understood, you know, what was happening boots on the ground. And the biggest the biggest difference I found was around the culture between uh, the US, Europe, uh, the UK, where I'd worked in Middle East, Asia, etc. And, and each region or sub-region has a very different approach. So for example, mm. um, design and build or design and construct isn't a thing in the US, whereas in the UK and London, it's very advanced. And a lot of the big projects are being done under these, these contracts. Asia is a hybrid, um, New Zealand had started it, Australia yeah. had, as you mentioned, you know some, some good bad examples of, of yep. it. So it was trying to understand what the clients meant Um, the terminology and nomenclature that we had to use to be able to sell or get the idea uh, across to a client. And that varied from sometimes city to city. So we had to to understand and tweak the model over and over again. And this is iterative. It wasn't a a Mm -hmm. perfect guideline. We're doing something that very few had done before. And we wanted to make sure that we were locally connected to what the people needed and what they, and how we sold it. For, for, for the uh, business development team in, in particularly. And what we found is the, the cultures changed from mm. studio to studio. So we talk about, you know, being one culture and that's the way that we hire and the types of people we're looking for. But you need to make sure that the, the local influence is there and that they've got some autonomy around not only the way that the studios run, but also the type of designs there because design in the US is different from the design in Italy. So there's not one big design style. We don't have one house style. Uh, It has to vary depending on our client and we match our designers' talents to suit. I'm interested then as as
2: one global practice, how it is that you guys have managed remuneration. What is the way that you've set the practice up and, and is that consistent, varying or depending on your level
0: across the globe? So what we've tried to do, a lot of benchmarking Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, because if you're you're thinking about 50 odd cities around the world, there's a lot of benchmarking that needs to be done for salaries. Being a new firm, you can't underpay. You need to make sure you're attracting these people across. So we're we're probably paying at the higher end uh, of the industry intentionally to bring the talent across because we're getting that back. You're getting the rewards back in spades later anyway. So we make sure we do that. We initially, because the uh, initial founders uh, around the world, it was basically out of their pocket. Yep. So this has been growing and growing and growing. So there was small bonus schemes mm-hmm. uh, were based on percentages of salary or achievement, but this has actually only really been over the past couple of years of been measuring this properly. So we're now at a situation where we are restructuring uh, our bonus scheme mm-hmm. uh, right across the business. So all of the funding's been out of the original founders' pockets at yes. this point of time. And now they realize that, you know what, a shareholding or at least the structure can be put in place now that that only provides some incentive in it uh, for the people to continue the expansion into mm-hmm. different areas, um, but also rewards them for it. So we're in the early stages of that at this point, but that's, that's where it's going.
2: And are you looking at trying to establish something that makes it much more of a, a staff-owned practice, or will it still be reasonably hierarchical in that, that the senior people will have a piece of the equity and the sort of more junior members will come on as a salary and have opportunity as they grow.
0: Yeah, more more of the latter at this stage. I mean, we're only a nine-year-old firm, so we're sort of still trying to work out the Mm -hmm. nuances and the way that we work. However, in terms of the way that people are bonused, whether it's a, a small or a large amount, depending yeah. on the performance of the region. But luckily, over the years, we've been doing pretty well. So um, people have been looked after, which, are, which is great. But at the moment, we're looking at more of a, an equity, I guess you could call it more of a top down yes. uh, with the opportunities to perform within your salaries or areas of expertise. There's
2: probably a great variety in the way these things are set up because so many of them are set up in a fairly ad hoc, non-business sensed way. You've moved around a number of practices, are there models that you've kind of watched and, and can take a, a bit
0: of knowledge out of? Probably the first experience was when I was at Gensler, and mm-hmm. they, they they gift across the shares, and you your bonus based on your the performance because you're you gifted the shares, you don't have to buy into it, uh, which was fantastic and something I didn't expect. I was there to do great work, and I was in a new city, and and and, yeah. and, and all was good. Um, so it was a little uh, a lovely little nod, and even after I left. That, that bonus check still came through because I'd completed a certain amount of a year. So, very, um, Gens was very good at that. Then across the Woods Baggot and I was there at the very beginning when they had offered shareholding mm-hmm. uh, to certain people, and that was more of a buy-in uh, approach, and that uh, came after a lot of advice from a lot of the, the, the consultancy yep. firms of how to set that up. And that really was the – that took that firm from 300 people at the time to near 1,000 people in a few years. So that gives you an idea of if you're, you know, you're going to reward or, or incentivize and reward people to perform and give them the ability to perform, that made a massive impact on the business. So I, I guess it's it does vary across. I love the idea of everyone owning a share personally. I yep. think it's, it's the right thing to do and you can increase the share over the period. But whether it's a bonus or the shareholding, I think it's just a structural thing. The key that we need to do is keep our people happy, keep them productive, uh, and make sure they're working together.
2: And there's a lot of attention being paid on on staff retention. Do you think that having a piece of the business is necessarily
0: a way to retain staff? I think it's certainly one of the, the good ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what I get out of it is I, I like the challenge. Sure, the, sure the money's great, uh, if you perform, but I actually like the challenge of getting better and better and better and, and, and improving. And there's a, there's a long way that we could all go and everything's work in progress. So I think that's that for me, that gets me out of bed. And I, I tell people that over the 25 years that I've been doing this, I've never got out of bed in the morning not wanting to go to work. It's the greatest industry of what I do and whether it's driven by money, but it's actually for me, it's driven by the challenge.
1: The Interior Design Excellence Awards are celebrating their 18th birthday this year. And early bird entries for Idea 2020 close on Friday the 27th of March. So don't forget to get your entries in now.
2: And so I'm interested now in your approach as a global design director to how you're mentoring staff
0: in uni space, to have the great careers similar to what you've had? Mm. So I encourage, uh, as I did, Mm -hmm. to move as much as possible. One of the the lures of coming to a global firm is the ability to be able to move within that firm. If anyone says, Simon, I'm thinking about going to London, or absolutely, what can I do to help you? I think it's the greatest thing you could possibly do is try to get, especially multicultural uh, yeah. Experience anywhere in the world, working with other great people. They're not going to get it all from me, I can tell you, right? So get it wherever you possibly can around the world. So that that's a big part of it. The The other bit is over the years, I've been able to get great people on board. It's taken a lot of convincing because, you know, it's it's not your run of the mill. It's not a brand that everyone knows. It's something that um, a lot of people initially were very skeptical, whether it would work or not. But over the years, people have seen it and they've, yep. they've, they've seen the impact it's had. And it's like, actually, you know what? I wouldn't mind working there. So we've seen better and better quality of people coming across. Um, not the initial people weren't of their quality. They just yeah. had different, different aspirations and different ideas, but the leaders are now coming in. So now I've, I've found great mentors for others uh, to be able to learn from as well. Uh, and the diversity of mentorship is, is critical amongst getting better.
2: And have you got a formal
0: mentoring program or is it, is it all informal? There's a structure for formality that was a part of the, the spine in the jellyfish, making sure that we had some people managers, uh, yep. not only to sign off timesheets and, and holidays and things like that, but actually within specialisms. So we now have a, a structural formal process that we've, we've put in place just over the last 12 months okay. to make sure that people know who they can get their mentor Mm -hmm. ship from or their -hmm. uh, their advice from, and now that's on the intranet and the portal to make sure that we can, you know who to turn to. Um, Of course, the person next to us is a great mentor as well, but we have formalised it just recently.
2: I just want to talk back on projects for for a moment. You've obviously had a 25-year career. A few of them must have stood out. What are the ones that jumped to the front of your mind as being the most innovative
0: projects? One project that... It was a, and this is one of the one of the reasons I ended up choosing interiors over architecture. But it was a, a project that's been recently completed. It was a nine year project um, yeah. in the middle of the desert in Riyadh, Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia, with uh, Zaha Hadid's team and yes. uh, Patrick Schumacher. And it was a it's called Capsarc, and yep. it's a, a research petrochemical research um, center. And it's a an, it's a not for profit, and it's a seventy thousand square meter project based on a, a beautiful hexagonal shape and it's a lead platinum building mm-hmm. in the middle of the desert which is no mean feat but worked with an international team, uh, we were based out of London, and this project d- defies in terms of the engineering and the feat of what this thing and the vision that the at the moment the ruler and the leader had there to be able to provide this was unbelievable. So in terms of the, the finished product and what it took to get there was, was amazing. There was a client being the ruler, but yep. actually there was no one that was going to live in it yet. It was yeah. yet to be fueled. So in terms of developing the brief, it was quite interesting. And uh, trying to work out what was going to be best in 10 years when this thing's built and then for the next 50 years beyond was was certainly challenging. And uh, the environment was the biggest part of it. Working with Arup on the environmental engineering was incredible. And of course, to get all the, the lead platinum rating yeah. was, was quite a challenge.
2: H- have you been there?
0: I've been there When it was mid-construction, I haven't been there at the end. So uh, it's on the bucket list now to go back there and and see it finish. But it's won a lot of awards recently, and the photographs are as stunning as the original VRs and the renders were.
2: Oh, fantastic. And what do you find the most challenging thing in your projects?
0: Each project comes with unique challenges. You know, the, the client being the first and foremost, what do they know? How much do they know? How many times have they done this before? And I think it's probably tweaking the team or, or matchmaking the right team for the client. So it's not only do they have the specific industry knowledge, but do they have that chemistry between client and team, being the strategy, design, or the delivery. We mm. want to make sure there's harmony from the beginning to get that done. So they're probably that very initial phase is probably one of the, the hardest parts of it. And particularly with the Unispace model, making sure that internally everyone's talking, collaborating, and communicating as much as possible across the project as well.
2: You mentioned the term matchmaking and, and I think it's interesting that you're not just matching skills, but you're matching people. And so often the success of a project is about actually a coming together of like minds, not necessarily just a coming
0: together of skill sets. We don't want everyone to groupthink all the way through the project, right? We want to make sure there's a little bit of friction, Yeah. but the friction can happen in the studio, not in front of the client. So to get the best result, we need to challenge each other through the process um, Mm -hmm. to make sure we got the best. So different people listen for different things in those client briefings as well or in the presentations. So the the client relationship manager will hear a completely different thing from the designer, from the strategist, from the technical person. And it's amazing how many times we have a debrief and all of a sudden everyone heard a slightly different thing. So we need to keep balancing that and that's why we've got to keep coming together. But the friction, a little bit of friction is good. We don't want punch-ups, of course, but the friction is actually good between the different disciplines because it keeps everyone on their toes a little bit.
2: Yeah. So Simon, you've had this great career working with many, many practices and now you're at Unispace. How have you used that first hand knowledge of disruption and design in the way that
0: you've gone about setting up the Unispace workplace? So I've been fortunate enough to work with, with many people uh, around the world over the years. And I, I'm finding that in the Unispace way, as was with other ways, it's, it's not clear cut. There's no, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a perfect way to do it yet. Yep. And I think there's this, this, this we've got to keep challenging and testing and reiterating and going over and d- are we actually doing it the best way we possibly can? Are, the, are we servicing the clients in the best way? Do they really need this or don't they need this? Going back to my, I guess my early sporting career, um, you know, teamwork seems to, to bring some of the best results, particularly for me. I I was um, okay at tennis, but I realized it was an individual sport and I really appreciated the ability for a team sport, whether I'm having a good day, uh, picking up someone else or whether I'm having a terrible day, someone can yeah. pick me up. And that's how I see the the teams come together. So a little bit of it is learning from other design firms around the world and great mentors and mentees I've had, but also I keep going back to that, the the team analogy and the ability to challenge and test and improve and every time we bring a new person on it's well what's your opinion what do you think about that here's what we sort of here's an idea what do you think and so handing that back and i learned that very early on in, in my gensler days from a, a great designer called enrico caruso um not the singer um yes. but uh, brilliant and he would he was a, he led from behind yeah. um, from behind he would always so what do you think about that ben and, and should yeah. we go along this line or do you think the client heard that and then you bring someone else in and so it was this beautiful you know, sporting analogy of teamwork will really bring the success mm. at the end of the day. And, um, and so if there's anything, it's that stayed with me. I'm yep. not going to be able to do it myself. The team's going to get us across yes. the line.
2: And so design is a team sport.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. And that's why I love, you know, I've been attracted to the larger firms because I see that that's just a, you know, it's, a, it's a, an association of a yes. group of Teams working mm. together. Sometimes you play on the A team. Sometimes you play on the B team. So you know, but yeah. it's it's actually bringing that all together. And the big transition to a, a leadership role is understanding that and trying to to you know match make, bring the right teams together with the right chemistry to create the magic that we need.
2: You've had a lot of design competition experience. Uh, obviously, some of the work you've done with big names like Zaha Hadid has been in competition mode. What are your thoughts on competitions as a means of driving innovation
0: and delivering great design? There's, you know, there's two sides of the coin here, right? So doing an intense amount of work in a short period of time and throwing great ideas down, I think is brilliant, right? Just bringing a bunch of people together and and challenging everything that's there with some good research that sits behind you, the, the, the results often incredible. And unfortunately, yep. a lot of these don't get built in a competition scenario. So out of a you know the six that go for it, five don't get built. And that's why it's great to see some of the, the WAF awards and things that rec- mm. uh, recognizing some of these great unbuilt work. The other side of the coin, of course, is that it costs a lot of money to run a competition. So as a smaller firm, you're investing a lot of time and money in that process. Now, you are getting better at it. And in fact, when I was at Chipperfield, we had specific teams They were just doing competitions all year round. Very hard work, very long nights. But what they were churning out was was unbelievable. But that was around international competition rules. When it comes to other areas where it's a little bit more, uh, I won't say cowboy, the approach to it. But here, if you want to win this job, do all your work and throw your IP and share that out right now, yep. and then we'll choose whether it's the right one. Now, the dice can be loaded in one where Do you have the right relationship with the client? Are they really selecting the best design, or is it just something that they have to go through a process for the, for the process sake? So there's good and bad. I, I think if the best competitions and the best outcomes that I've seen and all the ones I've done around the world are paid competitions, cover the costs at least, right? We don't ex- necessarily expect to make a profit out of competitions, but if you want the best results out of it and the client's really seeing some of this great uh, work, then- Give them some money for it. It'd be like a, asking a doctor for, to complete the operation and then go back later and say, oh, by the way, I'm not going to pay you for it.
2: So now some questions that we regularly ask our guests.
0: What is it that you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out? When you're at university, I think you, you think that the design is, is everything. But design is subjective. It's kind of like art. And I wish I realised that you're not going to please all the people all the time. You actually got to do sometimes what you feel is right yep. or go with your gut feel. If you want to test it and bounce ideas off other people, then great. But you know what? Believe in yourself and, and go with your gut because you're not going to please all the people all the time. What advice would you
2: give to a new fledgling practice in Australia starting out today?
0: I'd probably say get as much help as you can afford, right? You, you don't learn everything, you don't know everything. And yep. as, a, as a fledgling practice, there are a lot of mistakes you can make that could cost you money, right? Get the advice up front and make sure you're learning from it. There's only certain things we know, and as yep. a fledgling business, you don't know what you don't know. So get help in uh, make sure you're getting great people around you because you never know when you might, might need them. Yep. That includes clients, you know, keep those relationships, stay in contact, be there when they need to, but also when they don't need you.
2: So what do you consider to have been your greatest challenge and what did you learn from it?
0: Probably that initial move from Sydney to Cortinopal yeah. was was the, the biggest challenge for me uh, moving to a culture and a region and a uh, an environment that i've never even um, been to before or had necessarily read yeah. about back in the mid nineties, right? Yep. A very different place than it is now. So that was that was probably that that pivot point in my life, and that was the biggest challenge. Yes, I'd cry myself to sleep at some <laughs> nights, but it was so so much uh, so much challenge there, and the joy of yeah. actually succeeding in a place like that was uh, was great for me. So yeah, that would probably be the biggest challenge for me.
2: And so conversely, I guess, what do you
0: consider to have been the greatest success, and what did you learn from that? I think there've been. A series of incremental successes mm-hmm. along the way, and I, you know, you, you go back and you think about, well, what was it, my first large project, and or my first client, great client testimonial, what was uh, the first award, or a speaking engagement, or, and and I think, you know, we, we never stop learning, as they say, and I think there'll be a bunch of firsts that will keep coming, uh, hopefully keep coming, because yeah. that's the way we keep getting better at what we're doing, right?
2: Yep, yeah, absolutely. So now five and five. I'll give you a word. And if you could just have an off the cuff response, kind of representing what that word means to you success, team, well being, <laughs> sleep,
0: <laughs> disruption, unispace, <laughs> opportunity. You got to grab it, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Take it. Downtime. Family. Nice.
1: Thanks to Simon and Ben. And to you for joining us. Listen in next time as we hear from a new guest sharing their journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeleine Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.